are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. What we do here on Thursdays is we begin with a lead question, and I'll get into the lead question in just a moment, but I do want to do a few things. I want to welcome our TWR360 audience. Thank you so much, and thank you for accommodating our hour later start today. So pleased uh, that you could join us. And I also uh, want to say next week, God willing, and if I live, we'll be back at the 12 noon West Coast time of the United States time. So an hour earlier than we started together this week. So we're going to go back to our normal time next week. And let me tell you, if you have a uh, suggestion for a different time when we should live uh, present this program, I know a lot of people watch it on recorded version anyway, but if you've got a suggestion, you're free to make your suggestion. I can't say we're going to follow it, but we want to know what people think. And so you're free to make your suggestion. All right, so let me get into today's um, lead question. It comes from a viewer um, who wanted to know about Jehovah's Witnesses. Specifically, her mom is a Jehovah's Witness, and she wanted to know what she could do. And so uh, here's what her question is. Um, I have one more, and this is important to me because my mom is one of them. What are the Jehovah's Witnesses, and why— when I ask some pastors about it, they just gave me a vague answer. What are the pros and cons of being a JW, a Jehovah's Witness? All right, well, let me just uh, stop right here um, and address this question. Uh, listen, it's very important to understand the first part of your question, what are the Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a, a cultic, heretical, doctrinally speaking— uh, supposedly Christian group. I, I won't call them a Christian group because they deny fundamental truths about Christianity. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society uh, is the organization that is known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. This was an organization started by Charles Taze Russell um, more than a hundred years ago. And Charles Taze Russell, and then his successor, a guy named Judge Rutherford, and then a council of people ever since, have been instrumental in promoting these doctrines of the Jehovah's Witness, uh, the doctrines of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And if I could uh, express it this way, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of strange doctrines, uh, they refuse blood transfusions. That's strange. They refuse to take the Pledge of Allegiance, as is the custom uh, for many, for example, school children to do in the United States. Uh, they will. Um, uh, they don't believe that people go to heaven when they die. They believe in annihilationism. They believe that Jesus Christ did not die on a cross with a horizontal beam, but rather just on a stake, a pole. Okay, all those are strange doctrines, but to get to the core of what Jehovah's Witnesses believe that's so wrong and that, to me, puts them outside the pale of Christianity. Look, there's different Christian groups that believe a lot of things that I would regard as strange. I mean, we could debate those things if you want. But what really puts the Jehovah's Witnesses in a class that I would say they're not Christians at all 
is their direct and energetic and vehement denial that Jesus Christ is God. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe that Jesus Christ was a created being, that he preexisted as some kind of angel or junior God, but that he is not God. They deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, um, this is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. Absolutely essential to believe. Because I'll just put it to you very simply. The Jesus that's presented in the Bible is God. Uh, Look, I I mean, that's another Bible study for us to do. You you can find lots of content on my own channel that talks about the deity of Jesus Christ. But the deity of Jesus Christ is clear in the scriptures, in the gospels, in the epistles, even in the Old Testament. The deity of Jesus Christ is clear in the scriptures. Therefore, if somebody denies the deity of Jesus Christ, they're trusting in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. They're putting their trust in a Jesus who does not exist. And an imaginary Jesus has no power to save. An imaginary Jesus can do nothing. And so it's very significant. It's very interesting to say that um, what makes Jehovah's Witnesses outside the pale of Christianity— why we would call them a cultic group and not a Christian group, why they may consider themselves Christians, of course, and why uh, the outside world may consider them to be Christians. Well, look, they go to church, they talk about Jesus, they talk about the Bible, on and on and on. Listen, the Jesus of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is not the Jesus of the Bible, despite their claims to otherwise. Make no mistake about it, the the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that their Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible, but they're just flat out wrong. What the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus Christ is essentially the Arian heresy. Arianism, a doctrine promoted by a guy named Arius uh, in the 300s into the 400s AD, was a doctrine that basically taught exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that Jesus Christ is a created being of a very high and exalted order. He's uh, the most prominent of every created being that God created, but Jesus Christ is not the creator. Jesus Christ is not God. That was the teaching of Arius. That's the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses today. And Arius was wrong. The church rightly dealt with the Arian heresy, although it's very interesting. It was a near-run thing. Uh, I think it was Athanasius who said the world woke up and find itself Arian. It it looked like there was a time in church history when it looked like Arianism might deceive the whole church, but fortunately it did not. They came back to a biblical understanding of who Jesus is and that Jesus Christ is God. So, that is the key error. It's not the only error of Jehovah's Witnesses, not by any means, but it is the key and central error. Now, when we're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, and when we're talking about the incarnation, the fact that God added humanity to his deity, and when we talk about the Trinity, there are many complexities in these ideas that I think that somebody could theoretically be an error about, 
Uh, for example, th- there could be errors about how the humanity and the deity of Jesus interacted. I think some of those errors w- would be uh, heretical and and put somebody outside the pale of Christianity. I think other errors in there could just be misunderstanding or controversial. But the direct denial of Jesus Christ, that he is God, this puts someone outside the bounds of biblical Christianity. So, if you want to minister to your mom, just bring her back to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, again and again and again. Now, that's the one part of the Jehovah's Witnesses. But the other part that's very complicated about the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is that there are at least two senses in which a movement can be a cult. Uh, A movement can be a cult in and at they teach wrong theology. It's their ideas, their theology, their biblical understanding that's wrong. That, That can make a group a cult. But then there's also something that you could call a sociological cult or a a cult in their culture. Cult, culture, you could combine those words. It's a cultish culture in these groups. And the Jehovah's Witnesses mark that box at all, as well, I should say. They mark that box because it is a highly controlled environment. A Jehovah's Witness is not supposed to read any literature or listen to any lectures or Bible studies of groups that they don't already agree with. You'll notice when that Jehovah's Witness comes and knocks at your door, they are there to teach you. They may keep the conversation pleasant for a while, but if there is the real sense that you are teaching them, they're not going to hear it because they aren't there to learn they're there to teach. Jehovah's Witnesses are forbidden from reading uh, commentaries, from reading books that would teach that Jesus Christ is God. And it's a controlled environment. It's also, if I could say this, a very works-based relationship with God. Uh, Again, that Jehovah's Witness who knocks at your door, they're keeping a time sheet of time served. And that gets checked up on to see if they're faithful in their time served. And it's very important for them to be in good standing among their Jehovah's Witness congregation for them to have adequate time served. It's a very works-oriented religion. So these are the things. I guess one thing that you could say to your mother, and perhaps would be helpful for her, is to stress with her the importance of the grace of God. You know, that can seem like something so beautiful and refreshing to people who are trapped in legalism. When they begin to understand the greatness of the grace of God, sometimes that can be something that frees them from their bondage to legalism and to whatever cultish group, if that's the problem, that they would be involved in. So thank you for that question. Um, I'm glad you could in. It just I, I pray that uh, our our audience will remember your mother in prayer. All right, on to our next question from Laura, who asks, "How do I know when a word prophesied to me by someone else in a prophetic team is really coming from God?" 
Many times a prophetic word is given to me, but nothing happens. All right. Well, Laura, uh, I, I think we got a problem here. And I'll tell you what I think the problem is, is you've been involved with these people who purport to be prophets in some sense. They're purporting to speak for the Lord, yet they've been repeatedly wrong, which just simply means this. You shouldn't trust them much. You shouldn't trust what they say. Uh, Look, if people are going to be bold enough to say, thus saith the Lord, that they're speaking as a representative of God, then they should be accountable for that speech. And if they are repeatedly wrong, they, they shouldn't be regarded. There is such a thing as a track record in such things. And it is one of the amazements in the charismatic world of today. Now, there's so many purported prophets who come out with wrong word after wrong word after wrong word, et cetera, et cetera. And yet people still give them the time of day. They, they shouldn't give them the time of day. They, they've discredited themselves. Now, I say that as someone who believes that God does still communicate to people today and does still communicate through people today. I have been the beneficiary at certain times in certain places. I'm not going to say it's a regular thing, but certainly at some important times and places, I've been a beneficiary of some prophetic words. But again, there has to be an accountability in this. And often they're not. Laura, you need to remember what the Bible says about prophecy that we should judge the prophets and test the prophets. We shouldn't just say, oh, somebody said, thus saith the Lord, and well, that must be uh, the Lord's word. No, first you judge and test any claimed prophetic word in light of the scriptures. If it contradicts the scriptures anyway, it's out. But secondly, there's another measure by which to measure because it, it may not be dealing with something that's directly scriptural. You deal with it by the test of, does it actually come to pass? If it doesn't come to pass, not only does that tell you something about that prophecy, it tells you something about that person who claims to be a prophet. And thirdly, you have the test of just what I would say is the discerning of spirits. Uh, God gives perhaps you or maybe trusted people around you a sense of whether or not that claimed word from the Lord was really something from God. And so, Laura, if people have a track record of speaking to you, saying, thus saith the Lord, and it's not true, then I don't think you should give much weight to what they say in the future. They've sort of discredited themselves as being, um, any, in any sense, accurate messengers of what God may be trying to communicate. Okay, uh, next question from Proud Firstborn asks, Pastor David, I have a question about church marriage versus traditional marriage, where parents just give you away, but no wedding in a church. Are both right? Love from Uganda. All right, proud firstborn, I'm going to give you my take on this. And I do just want to say, God bless you in Uganda listening to our broadcast today. I visited Uganda for the first time this last year, and I greatly enjoyed my time there. 
So God bless you and other brothers and sisters in Uganda. All right, I, I would just simply answer this question is that uh, the legal wedding is the wedding that I think matters the most before God. Now, careful if anybody's alarmed and trying to act as if, well, I don't think that the church wedding is significant. I'm speaking about those cultures where they will not recognize a wedding, a marriage, unless it's been done legally. It it gets complicated. Uh, In the United States, your legal wedding can be your church wedding. They can be combined. In much of Europe, a church wedding has no legal standing at all. You have to go get married down at the town hall. That's where you get married legally, and then you have a marriage uh, wedding ceremony at the church. But, but the two kind of are separate events. Of those two events, I think the one that matters before God is the legal wedding. Because that's the one that proclaims to the world We've made commitment to one another. We've made commitment together in in the eyes, not only of God, but in the eyes of our whole community. So, I think that if a person was to have a church wedding, that's great. Praise the Lord. I'm all for that. But they should also have a legal wedding if the church wedding is not a legal wedding. It's very important to have that so that your marriage is recognized by the community that you live in. Now, again, laws differ from place to place, but most communities have a way that a marriage can be recognized by that community. That's what should be done. And so uh, you ask, uh, is one or the other? Well, again, in Europe, the Christian couples I know do both. They do a, a wedding a marriage ceremony there at the town uh, hall, and then they do a marriage ceremony or a wedding ceremony there in the church. You can do both, but if you're only going to do one, you should do the legal one, the one at the town hall, because that's what recognizes it before God. Look, weddings are very special days, and I don't want to deny the fact for anybody that it's a very special day. There's no doubt some women dreaming of their wedding day and men too as well, but it seems to be something that often is more dear to the heart and the mind of a woman. There's people dreaming of their wedding day and their church marriage wedding and all of that. But I just want to say that the important thing before God is the commitment made according to the laws and the standards of the community that they dwell in. And that means doing it according to the law. I hope that's helpful for their a proud firstborn. Next question comes from Margaret, who asks, is God an equal opportunity savior? Or are there some he does not save? Will some receive grace and others justice? Oh, Margaret, great question. But but I got to say a little bit complicated. So I'm going to read it again. Maybe I'll take it piece by piece. Is God an equal opportunity savior? Well, Margaret, in a sense, yes. Uh, What Abraham said of God in Genesis, what is it, Genesis chapter 18, I think, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Absolutely he will. What it also says about God uh, in the Bible is that the Lord shows no partiality. 
God is not a partial God. He doesn't discriminate, so to speak. So yes, there's a sense in which God is an equal opportunity savior. Then your second question, are there some that he does not save? Well, absolutely there's some that God does not save. And I could give you two answers. Whom are the people who God will not save? Or who, I don't know if I'm using my English language right here. Who are the people whom God will not save? Maybe that's a better way to say it. I wish my proofreader, Allison, was with me right now. She could tell me the right way to do this. Who are the people whom God will not save? You could give two answers to that question, and in a sense, they're the same answer. You could say, those who will not believe are the ones who God will not save. And you could say, those whom God has not chosen. Because ultimately, that's the same group. If God has chosen you, you will believe. If you believe, it's evidence that God has chosen you. So, no, there are definitely some that God will not save. Those who do not believe, those who are not chosen. And again, since the chosen part is from God's perspective and the believing part is from our perspective, we need to be concerned about our part. We need to put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ and not spend our time trying to figure out who God has chosen and not chosen. So, is God an equal opportunity saver? Yes, in a sense. Are there some he does not save? Yes, those who will not believe, those who are not chosen. And thirdly, will some receive grace and others justice? Well, Margaret, I would say this. Everyone will receive grace and justice. You know, the idea that theologians talk about that we often call common grace is real. As Jesus said in the Bible, he makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He sends rain to the just and the unjust. God shows his grace to all of humanity. And he also shows in some way or another, his justice to all of humanity. Now, are there some to whom God shows greater grace? Absolutely. But that's the very nature of grace. Grace is giving that is undeserved and unprompted by anything in the recipient. Grace is giving that's prompted by the giver, not by the receiver. So do you remember that great parable that Jesus told about the landowner who went out and hired people at all different times of the day, yet he paid them all the same wage. And so somebody who maybe worked for one hour got a full day's wage and, and maybe somebody else who worked the whole day got one day's wage. Well, that landowner, who's an illustration of God and his grace, uh, he showed more grace to some people, but he showed grace to everybody. So, Margaret, God is good to all, and all, in some way or another, experience God's justice. The proportionality of that, in some respect, God has said to us, believe on me and the judgment you deserve will be poured out on my son instead of on you. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Margaret. Thank you for that great question. SP asks, excuse me. SP asks, do you believe that Jesus will utilize and continue to expand technology in his millennial kingdom? 
Or is technology rooted in evil only to be abolished and done away with? Ooh, SP. Good question. You know, I, I like this question because it's a question I haven't thought of before. And so I'm going to give you the pure, immediate reaction. Th this is an answer given with very little thought. What's it been, about 20 seconds since I asked that question? That's about how much thought I've given to this right now. So I'll give you my immediate impression. Yes, mankind will utilize and expand technology in the millennial kingdom. Uh, now, again, I'm speaking under a certain eschatological or end times construct. Not everybody in the Christian world agrees with this eschatological or end times construct, but I'll just speak according to what I believe. I do believe there will be a millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ reigns over this earth and he'll do it as well through sub-regions, but Jesus Christ will reign in a direct way over all the earth and that reign will have a period that lasts a thousand years. Not that the reign ends after a thousand years, just like, well, the Bible doesn't use this phrase, but Handel's Messiah uses it. He shall reign forever and ever. A thousand years is not the limit of Jesus's reign, but it does define a specific period of it when God is doing certain things. And in that time, why shouldn't technology flourish? We're very aware of some of the evils of technology that sometimes it's uh, easy for us to uh, shut our eyes somewhat to the great blessings technology has brought us. And uh, why should not those blessings continue on in the millennial age? And so, uh, sure, in the millennial kingdom, w why not? Th there'll be the internet, but it'll be a better internet. It'll be internet without any pornography on it. I'll tell you that, boom, it's gone because of Jesus Christ and his righteous reign. And uh, on and on and on. There will be technology and perhaps some of the most sophisticated technological advancement. Uh, under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in a direct sense, there is certainly a sense in which Jesus Christ rules and reigns now. It's not like things are spinning out of control and he has no control. No, 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 no. But there's a greater realization of his kingdom to come. Why should not technology progress during that period? But SP, that, that's my immediate reaction. Thank you so much for a great question. I love these questions that I've never thought of before. Next question comes from WA. How should we call out false prophets in the church? Well, WA, let me say, uh, we should not do it with uh, rocks in our hand. <laughs> that was the Old Testament penalty for a false prophet, to stone them, to execute them. Well, we don't live under the same government that God commanded Israel in the Old Testament. There's certainly principles that we learn from God's law in the Old Testament, but we don't apply it in a one-to-one -one basis. So you shouldn't stone them. But I, I would just simply say, well, okay, it, it would depend on what your role would be in the church. If a person is in a place of recognized leadership in the church, they are a pastor or elder in the church, then um, under godly consultation, the, the thing might be to do is approach that person and say, listen, you're speaking falsely in the name of the Lord, cut it out. And you could also say this, if you feel that God has given you some kind of word that needs to be spoken, here's what you're going to do in the future. You're going to bring it to me first, the pastor and the elders, and we're going to pray about it. And if we think it's truly from the Lord, we're going to judge that prophecy, then we'll do something with it. If not, well, then forget it. 
And if a person won't submit to that, well, then they're just being unsubmissive to the leadership of the church. So that's what church leaders should do. As for just people in the congregation, look, if somebody has some track record for speaking false prophecies and they come and bring you a prophecy, you should just say, sorry, friend, I don't believe you. You've got a bad track record when it comes to prophecy. I'm really not going to believe you on this one. So thanks anyway. God bless you. That's about it. It doesn't have to be traumatic, but just let them know, uh, hey, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. But let's not pretend like you have a good track record when it comes to these things. You actually have a bad track record. And so I'm not going to listen to you. Just that. That's simple. So I think there's a different response from the leadership in a congregation and a different response between just everyday people in the congregation. Hope that's helpful for you there, W. Thank you for that question. Johanna asks, is it wrong for me to accept my daughter's relationship when she's unequally yoked? She shares the love of Christ with her boyfriend, but moved out before getting married. How can I deal with this biblically? Well, Johanna, uh, your daughter, assuming she's a believer, I mean, I think that's the assumption that we're making here. Your daughter would be unwise to marry this man who's not a believer. And I need to press the point home why. It's not because Christians think that every unbeliever is a horrible person and would automatically make a horrible spouse. No, that's not it at all. And if somebody's trying to, you know, kind of give that impression, that's entirely wrong. No, 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 no. The, the, the reason is is that when you have um, a believer and someone who's not a believer, you have two people who are living their lives for really different purposes. A, a, A central focus for a believer should be, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to follow him and put him first. That's just to be primary for a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, the problem is, is that there's many people today who claim to be Christians, but they don't really live as disciples of Jesus Christ. They just kind of add a little bit of Jesus to their life. They're going to live the life they want to live, their priorities, their values, their habits, whatever. And when it comes to Jesus, it's like, well, I'll just add a little Jesus to all that. Friends, that's not being a disciple. That's not being a follower of Jesus Christ. But someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ lives their life with a different purpose, with a different mastering theme than somebody who isn't. So you're right in warning your daughter about her unequally yoked relationship. And I think that you should lovingly warn her. But I'm assuming that your daughter is of age. I'm assuming that she's not 15 or 16 years old. Um, If she's, and again, I I know this is a strong word, but if she's foolish enough to reject God's direction and do this, then um, you should still keep on loving her. She's going to need your love because she's going to bring some hardship in love. Look, her marriage to an unbeliever will bring some joys to her life. It will, assuming this is a good man. But it's also going to bring 
some real hardship to her life. And uh, you can love her in the midst of that too. So I would say mainly what it comes up to for me, Johanna, is bringing uh, loving, to use a New Testament word, admonishment, for you to admonish her in the way that she should go. Thank you there for that question. Uh, next question comes from Andres, who asks, what makes it a church authoritative if most claim to believe the Bible? Are confessions and creeds needed to protect the true church? All right, well, Andres, you're really asking two questions there. Um, you know, the Bible talks about a couple of things. It talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, there are some people, some churches, some pastors, some leaders. Yeah, they'll use the Bible. They'll quote the Bible. But, but they don't really, on any consistent way, rightly divide the word of truth. Listen, there's something you learn as a Christian, if you got any kind of discernment at all, you learn after a while that not everybody who picks up a Bible, opens it up, and starts talking is actually teaching the truth of God. And the ones who are not teaching the truth of God are not going to wear a name tag that says false teacher. It just doesn't happen that way. So you got to use some discernment. You got to be able to judge, uh, are they rightly dividing the word of truth? Another phrase that Paul used in his writings is he uses the phrase, the pattern of sound words. Sound teaching has a pattern. And, and I, I think when you're knowledgeable enough with the scriptures, if, if you love the Lord and love his word enough, you're, you're going to just be familiar with that pattern and you can have some discernment about whether or not something is being faithfully taught according to God's word. So uh, that's really how you tell. We need to be Bereans. Do you remember when the apostle Paul and his companions came to the city of Berea? Uh, it said that the people in Berea were more noble-minded because they searched the scriptures diligently to see whether or not the things Paul preached were so. God bless the Bereans. And, and may there be more people like that among God's people today. People who will take God's word, hear what the preacher says, compares it to God's word, and, and they're not primarily looking for eloquence. They're not primarily looking for funny stories. They're not primarily looking for captivating speeches and this and that. What they're primarily looking for, and not that those things aren't nice if they're there, but what they're really most interested in is, is this pastor rightly dividing the word of the truth? Is this pastor speaking according to the pattern of sound words? So what makes a church authoritative is not whether or not they quote the Bible, but whether or not they rightly divide it, whether or not they speak according to the pattern of sound words. And then you also add this, are confessions and creeds needed to protect the true church? Well, Andres, confessions and creeds can be helpful, but are not necessarily so. And this is what I mean. If somebody takes confessions and creeds and embraces them and honors them, and let's just talk about two primary creeds. Let's talk about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. I know that there's other confessions of faith and such like this, but let's just stick with those two. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. First of all, there are areas of doctrine and of modern life that are not touched upon 
by the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where, where somebody can be um, in great error about those things, but the creeds don't cover it. The creeds are not exhaustive. And as well, it's not uncommon for creeds to be put in place and then ignored. This is a significant problem, uh, not only in churches, but especially in institutions, such as Christian colleges and universities. There's Christian colleges and universities that have a statement of faith or a creed that they put up there and they say, okay, here's our creed, here's our statement of faith, here's our confession of faith, and everybody must subscribe to it, but then they don't care if anybody subscribes to it or not. They can have teachers or professors that are in open violation of those confessions and creeds, and they don't do anything about it. So a confession or a creed is only helpful if it will be enforced, so to speak. So I would say, look, they can be helpful, but to me, they're not the real necessary turning point. The necessary turning point is people will just have the courage to be faithful to God's truth, come what may. Hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Andres. Next question comes from CB, who asks, Hello, Pastor David. Can a person change their convictions, their stance, and emotional response regarding certain issues of Christian liberty if they grow in knowledge? If so, how might this be achieved? Okay, uh, well, the answer to that question is yes. Okay, I, I know a person who, at one time in their life, uh, among them in a youth group, they made a, a promise that they would never go see a movie. You know, I wonder what they do with that now, where movies come to us and everybody streams everything. But let's just say that they would never go to a movie. Well, listen, if a person made a vow or a promise like that, and then later on in their um, life, they came to the conviction, you know what, that, that was a silly vow. That was actually quite legalistic. While there are some movies that would definitely be offensive to my conscience as a Christian, there's other movies that would be just fine. I, I'm going to go and I, I can go see uh, certain movies that are offensive to my conscience as a Christian. Well, I think that would be a growth in liberty. And, and you could deal with that with a lot of different issues. So yeah, in principle, uh, CB, yes, I, I think a person can, over time, grow in their conscience, grow in their maturity, and something that once maybe they prohibited themselves, they would allow themselves. Or maybe something that they allowed, maybe it could go the other way. Now they will prohibit themselves. Uh, of course... There's a knife's edge of danger in this that somebody would do this just as an excuse to justify sin. But, you know, w wicked hearts will do what wicked hearts will do. And uh, though that's something to be on guard about, I don't think it's an inescapable inevitability. So I hope that answers your question there, CB. Thank you for that. All right, next question comes from Shai Yan, who asks, Shai Yan, listen, I, I don't know anything about your name. I'm wondering if it's uh, Asian 
or uh, Chinese in origin, you know, I, I do just want to remind everybody. My Bible commentary is translated into many languages. Now, not the entire Bible commentary. We're working on that. Uh, but the entire Bible commentary is translated into Spanish. The, in, the entire New Testament is translated into German, Arabic, Chinese, Portuguese, and Italian, I think, are almost finished. Russian is almost finished. And I'm just saying that to say, if you know people of these different language groups that would benefit from uh, having my Bible commentary translated into their language, let them know about these things. If you know missionaries working in these different countries or with these different people groups, let them know about these things. Oh, the entire New Testament commentary is finished in Farsi as well. Uh, I'll be very straightforward with you. We invest a lot into this translation work. We want it to be used. We, we just don't want it to sit on a shelf. We want it to be used. So uh, I appreciate your help in getting word out to these different um, uh, uh, different language groups. I just saw a note from Andrea who reminded me that Farsi's finished. Ah, I remembered it before you reminded me. But thanks for the reminder anyway. Um, okay, uh, Cheyenne asked this question. Hi, Pastor David, can you speak to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5? As based on this verse, Orthodox believes that the church is the foundation and pillar of truth as opposed to the scriptures. Okay, um, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground foundation or mainstay of the truth. Well, let me read to you from my commentary, a quote from Matthew Poole along these lines. I like what he says about this. Or excuse me, this is my comment and then a quote from Poole. This is what I say. It isn't that the church is the foundation for the truth, but that the church holds up the truth so that the world can see it. And then Matthew Poole says this, Pillars also were of ancient use to fasten upon them any public edicts, which princes or courts would have published and exposed to the view at all. Hence, the church is called the pillar and basis or seal of the truth, because by it, the truths of God are published, supported, and defended. Look, um, I understand the reverence our Orthodox brothers and sisters have for tradition and the ancient teachings of the church. But again, it isn't that the church itself and whatever the church says is right on and good. It's rather that the church has given us and the church publishes. It, it placards, it makes known what God has given us in his word. So the many, many references in both the Old and the New Testament to the importance and the foundation of God's word more than being important than the tradition of man. And I'm not saying that the tradition of man is irrelevant. It has its place. There's a place for understanding the traditions of the past. But look, I would say this, that if even churches in Paul's day were getting off track and needed desperately to be corrected, 
that instructs us that it's very possible for the church after the apostolic time to at least have seasons of error and seasons where error is emphasized. Therefore, it's wrong to go back and look and say, whatever the early church fathers said is right. Whatever the early church fathers say about an interpretation of scripture must be correct. No, no, no. What what they said should be read, should be understood, should be factored in, should be given some weight, of course, but not finally determinative weight. The final determinative weight is what God has recorded for us in his word. One other thing is that even though we understand that there's a sense in which let's say the letters of the New Testament were written to their original audience. And that has to be kept in mind when understanding the letter. However, under God's inspiration, those words were also always intended to speak to all peoples throughout all generations. Yes, it has a local understanding and application, but it is not limited to that. And so their understanding of it cannot be finely determinative. I hope that's helpful for you there. And thank you for that great question there, uh, Shayan. Next question comes from Larson. Hi, Pastor David. Can you speak to the righteousness accounted to Abraham through faith in Genesis 15? Is this the same righteousness accounted to us through faith in Jesus? Uh, Larson, yes. And that's Paul's exact point when he talks about Abraham and his faith. It is the same righteousness. However, let let me um, stress to say that in my understanding, this is something that Christians differ in their understanding on, but you're asking me this question. In my understanding, the result of that righteousness was different in Abraham's life as it was of the life of a person who lives on this side of the cross. Uh, Abraham was not born again, as would be under the new covenant. The new covenant was not yet given. There were privileges that believers have under the new covenant that Abraham did not have. So the righteousness was the same. Abraham was brought into right relationship with God. God declared him to be not only not guilty, but righteous in a positive sense. That's the same declaration that's made over the believer. But there are additional benefits to that right relationship with God that come to the believer on this side of the cross because of the new covenant and because the new covenant is truly new. I'm not trying to say that Abraham was in no sense regenerate, that Abraham had in no sense a real relationship with God. Of course he did. But I would just be very firm on the idea that the new covenant was new. And though it's in continuity, of course, with what God did in the past, it is a new covenant. And part of the newness of it is that promise of regeneration, of being born again for all of those who are under the new covenant. I guess that is how I'd express it. But the righteousness, that declaration of that man being now considered righteous before God, yes, that's the same uh, with Abraham and with the believer today. Next question comes from daughter of the king who asks, uh, those people that only claim to be Christians, are they not saved? I see some camps say people can be saved with no fruit. They will only get less reward in heaven. Is such a thing possible or biblical? 
All right, daughter of the king. Here's how I would answer your question. There is a line between profession and reality. When does a mere profession of faith become a reality of faith? When does it become something more than just words somebody says and actually comes into being a reality? Not something they just say with their mouth, but something they actually believe and trust in in their heart. There's a line somewhere in that continuity. And you or I, we just don't know where that line is, do we? We can't say with precision. We can't say, well, if a person does A, B, and C, for sure that's evidence. Uh, But if they do X, Y, and Z, for sure it's evidence on the other side. There's some people whose lives are so extreme one way or the other that we feel like as far as we can tell looking from the outside, we could say something about it. But not everybody's life is like that. So what you're asking is actually a complicated question that I can't give a certain uh, answer to, but this is what I would say with certainty. If a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, but there is little to no fruit in their life reflecting it, they should not be assured of their salvation, but rather like Peter said in one of his epistles, they should endeavor to make their calling and election sure by godly life and godly conduct. I would not give an assurance of salvation to someone who had little or no fruit in their life. I wouldn't say, yeah, hey, who cares? You made a profession of faith. That's all that matters. Doesn't matter. No, no, no. I, I would be very careful about that. So while we, from the outside, can't really tell with precision where that line is. We can say somebody should not be comforted in their fruitlessness, assured in their fruitlessness, if they lack that kind of, uh, you know, fruit, evidence of the reality of their profession of faith. Okay, next question comes from Chris Nem who asks, how would you describe the impact your friends, family, and community have on your faith journey? You know, Chris Nem, it's just, it, it's so significant that, that I hardly know how to phrase it. I, I came to Christ as a young teenager in an environment where God was doing something of a revival work around a bunch of young people. I mean, mostly high schoolers. I was in junior high at the time, but mostly high schoolers. A few of them were out of high school by a year or two. And among this group of friends, there was just a a wonderful outpouring of the Spirit of God. We, We would meet together for Bible study two or three nights a week. socially, we just live, you know, with each other and events and all this stuff. We just live life together. But God was just doing a work. And that initial community had a huge shaping effect. 
Then as I progressed on, the churches I've been a part of, uh, those that I've ministered with, those I continue to minister with, the church I now attend, uh, because I, I go to a church called Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara, and even though I'm not the pastor there anymore, I was the pastor there for seven years, but when we really felt led that God wanted me to put a focus on uh, the ministry of Enduring Word, this Bible commentary ministry, I stepped away from that, put my focus on this, but we still attend that church, and we love our church, and we love the relationships. It's It, it has a wonderful effect of keeping us um, of receiving the love and grace from other people, of being able to give love and grace to other people, uh, of just keeping us rooted and grounded. And, and it just, it's helpful on many levels. We, we need the body of Christ. So that's a quick answer to it. I say a quick answer because now I got to get to our, I assume this is a lightning round. You know, I'm looking at my screen here. And the moderator did not put up at the top lightning round, but I see a bunch of questions in one message. This is the lightning round. And it looks kind of like a long lightning round, like a lot of questions. And I think it's the moderator getting back at me for delaying the start. If you were with us at the very beginning of the broadcast, you saw for the first minute or two, I talked without the microphone on. I was just mouthing words, but nobody could hear anything. And I think the moderator's just letting me know, hey, we're going to catch up with that right here now. Okay, well, then let's do it. Lightning round. Asia asks, question, I am also from Uganda, but we have both civil, church, traditional, and Islamic types of marriage. So can I go just go with a civil marriage without a church marriage ceremony? And would it not be seen as fornication before God? I am curious. What I mean is that as a believer, can I consummate my marriage before God without making vows in church? Okay, uh, Asia, look, I'm going to tell you, if you belong to a church, this is actually a question that you should ask your pastor, because I'm not going to try to undermine the authority of your pastor. But if I was your pastor, I would say, Asia, I want you to have a church wedding, but the wedding that really counts before God is your civil marriage. Um, the church wedding's good. It's important. It honors God. But the marriage that really is important, the marriage that says, now we are married before God is your civil marriage. That's my opinion. However, I don't want to contradict your pastor. This is really a question that you should ask your pastor. Uh, and I think you should be very um, understanding of whatever their position is. But uh, if you were to ask me, if I were your pastor, I would say a, a church wedding is good. You should have a church wedding. But God is present in a civil ceremony as well as he is present in a church ceremony. And it's the civil ceremony that actually establishes the legal basis and the public community basis of the marriage. That's my opinion on that. Look, I'm sure there's different opinions out there. But again, you ask my opinion on it. That's my opinion. Thank you for that, Asia. Uh, Lynn asks, hi, Lynn from Lara, Australia. Hello, Lynn. Uh, I have a question in regard to elders and how Calvary Chapel chooses their elders and their role. Blessings to you all. Lynn, um, uh, of course, I am a Calvary Chapel pastor. Uh, my whole ministry has been, uh, as a pastor, has been within the sphere of kind of the Calvary Chapel world. So I know a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors and churches, and I can say that there is no universal custom among Calvary Chapel pastors and churches for how elders are selected 
and uh, what their role is. Uh, I know some Calvary Chapel churches that the role of the elders is very strong and heavy. I know other ones where the role of the elders is much less strong and much less heavy. And the emphasis is really on the pastoral leadership. So there's no universal answer to that. I I can tell you what I did. Uh, For me, it was very important that the elders were a real part of the church leadership. Uh, I definitely believed that we were a team in leadership, but as a senior pastor, I believed that I was the captain of the team. So it was important that I recognize us collectively as a team. It was also important that they recognize me as the captain. But we really worked together as a leadership team. And as far as the choosing of the elders, I would choose elders by having the existing board of elders nominate them and then have them affirmed by the congregation. That's basically how we would do it. But again, I don't think I've seen that there is a universal practice among Calvary Chapel churches for either the selection or the specific role that elders would play. Um, I just think that it's wise and it's good for leadership to be done as a team, but with that team having a captain. And uh, that's functionally how most church leadership works, no matter what people call it, (laughs) no matter what uh, word people assign to it. That's often functionally how it works. Thank you for that, Lynn. God bless you there down under. Uh, Brian asks, do you see a danger in teaching a pre-trib rapture as fact? This came up in our Bible study on Sunday. Should we be more clear to people that we're not 100% sure? Well, look, I think it's okay to... If somebody says, I am absolutely persuaded by the biblical evidence that uh, the church will be caught away uh, before... Uh, the world goes into this last seven-year period before Jesus Christ returns in glory. If somebody feels they're 100% persuaded of it, yeah, that's fine. Um, But we should always be prepared to face persecution. There are harmful side effects. I would call them unintended consequences that have come to people through the pre-tribulation rapture teaching. And, and some of those bad side effects or unintended consequences have been uh, people think that Christians will face no persecution or no tribulation in this world uh, before Jesus Christ catches them away, as the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, no, Jesus never promised us freedom from all persecution. So that should be the expectation of absolutely nobody in the Christian world. Another unintended consequence has been people who just give no thought to building uh, a good society in the here and now, and um, as Jesus said, occupying until he comes. No, there's a very real sense in that even if we believe that Jesus Christ is coming very soon, which I think we should believe, we we should still have to the glory of God long-term perspectives and intentions. Because ultimately, God knows when he's going to return. And it's good for us to be excited about the soon return of Jesus Christ. But it also means that we need to be responsible for the long term as well. The the two don't necessarily contradict each other. They don't have to contradict each other. So I, I do think that there are unintended consequences 
from a pre-tribulation rapture teaching that could and should be avoided? If that's kind of what you're asking, then I would agree with you. Uh, Leo asks, hi, Pastor Guzik. In Revelation 20, Satan is bound and released. Why would God release him? Why not keep him bound until his judgment in the lake of fire? Okay, I'll tell you why, Leo. Because God wants to show that at the end of a thousand years of perfect uh, administration of Jesus Christ on this earth, that there are still people on the earth who can be deceived by Satan. You know, uh, mankind has always blamed his environment for his sinful condition, for his problems. And it's true. Uh, A bad environment can make things much worse, but that's not the core of humanity's problem. The core of humanity's problem is not bad environment, it's us. And what Jesus Christ is going to do for the world, basically, is give it a thousand years of as nearly a perfect environment as possible. A perfect environment as possible with still having sinful people on the earth. And at the end of that time, when mankind is given an opportunity to rebel on a wide scale, they're going to take it. It's important that God demonstrate that principle before the great white throne judgment so that at the great white throne judgment, it will be proven beyond all doubt that the real problem was with mankind himself, not so much with his environment. Um, That's not the only reason for this great thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, but that's one of the reasons God will do it. Hope that makes sense to you there, uh, Leo. Philip asks, what's the benefit of seminary when seeking to be a pastor or shepherd? Uh, Philip, look, seminary can be great for a biblical education, for education in the original languages, uh, education in, you know, good practices, administration, all the rest of it. But Philip, I'm going to give my honest opinion here. I think that the value of seminary is over estimated. I didn't say it's nothing. No, not at all. Nobody hears me saying it's nothing. But I think that the value of seminary is overestimated as pastoral training. Oh, oh no, there's, there's great value to a good seminary. But I think it's overvalued. It's overregarded as being good preparation for pastoral ministry. I think oftentimes good preparation for pastoral ministry happens more on an apprenticeship model than it happens on a classroom model. Again, I'm not despising the classroom. I'm not saying that it doesn't contribute anything. I'm not saying that it doesn't do great good. But how many times have I heard it? How? I don't know how many times I've heard it from seminary grads who say, oh man, seminary was great, but it really didn't prepare me for what I had to face in the pastorate. Well, again, I not to despise what they gained in seminary. I'm sure it had its good and its purpose. So I'm not, I'm not trying to put down seminary. I'm just saying that as a means to prepare pastors, that the apprenticeship model has a lot to say for it that seminary doesn't. I hope that makes some sense to you. Thank you for that question there, Philip. Chrissy asks, what do you think about the belief that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is speaking to the woman at that time who were distractive and disruptive during that service. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let your women keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but they're also to be submissive as the law also says. Um, Chrissy, I think uh, there's something to that. 
but I think that the main, the best way to understand that, if I'm recalling correctly, is in the context of it. If you notice, it's in the context of judging prophecy. That's really the context in which Paul says that. Uh, the immediate verses before this in 1 Corinthians 14 um, speak of uh, judging prophecy. So what I think he's talking about is because the New Testament church was organized with men in the leadership, and not just any men, qualified men in the leadership of the church as pastors, elders, whatever, that Paul was saying, I don't want the ladies or other people not in the recognized leadership of the church, but he focused here on the ladies, to take part in judging these prophecies. That's the whole context there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I think that's the best way to understand that. I think it's clear from other passages that there was not an absolute prohibition on women speaking in churches. They could prophesy, Paul says, with the proper head covering. They could, uh, of course, uh, praise the Lord with worship songs. Uh, so even though they were not to lead in the worship service, again, I think the Bible makes that clear, uh, Paul's saying that as part of that not being in a leadership position, that they were also not to take place in the judging of the prophecy. Uh, Chrissy, again, look at that First Corinthians passage with the several verses before and after, and you'll see that judging prophecy is the context there. It makes a lot of sense in that thing. Uh, Lewis says, in our glorified bodies, Will we be able to teleport like Jesus did after he rose, entering the house of disciples when it's locked? Lewis from Kenya. Hey, Lewis, not only did I visit Uganda last time, last year for the first time, I also visited Kenya. Had a wonderful time in both countries. Uh, will we be able to teleport in like Jesus in our glorified bodies? Lewis, I sure hope so. And since Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection... It gives us reason to believe that our resurrection bodies will be modeled somewhat upon his resurrection body, and um, maybe we'll be able to have the same capability. That would be awesome if we could do that like Jesus did. Uh, Encounters asks, how to deal with political disappointments and hated candidates being elected? So many ungodly policies are being pushed out. What is the right attitude to take towards this? Right, encounters. I'm just going to give this is the lightning round. So I'm going to give a very brief answer. Christians should be politically involved. Hey, if you live in a democracy, which most of those listening to me do, not everybody, but if you're listening to me and you live in a democracy, you should be politically involved. Why should, so to speak, all the pagans? avail themselves of democracy, but the Christians stand back and don't vote and don't get involved in the political process. What kind of craziness is that? To do that is to turn your country over to the pagans. If you have a voice, if you have an ability to be involved in the political process, as a Christian, you should be involved. Because a democracy says that the people have their voice, and if you're a Christian people, so to speak, then you should have your voice heard. Now, that's the one side of it. Here's the other side. Christians should be politically involved without putting their hope in politics or in politicians. This is where many Christians 
fall into a trap because it's difficult. It's seductive. You get involved in the political process. You start putting your hope in it. Dear brother or sister, guard against that with all your heart. Christians should be politically involved, especially if they're in a democracy, but they should not put their hope in politics or in politicians. If you do, you are sure to be disappointed. Maybe not now. Maybe not with this election. Maybe this election you'll be super happy. Some coming election, you're going to be crushed because your hope was in a politician. And even the politicians who win that are on your side, so to speak, believe me, they're going to let you down sometime or another. So I'm very big on the idea of Christians being politically involved with their Christian conscience guiding them. I'm very down on the idea of Christians putting their hope in politics or politicians. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And then finally, last question is from Gina. Hello, Pastor David. Gina here. My question is, should worship leaders and musicians or vocalists be paid for their regular Sunday service to their church? Gina, I can't give a universal answer to that. There might be some situations in some churches where it makes sense. I I would say this, usually not. But there may be some circumstances and situations where it makes sense. Uh, So I can't give a universal answer to that. Um, if paying musicians leads to things being done with a wrong heart or in a wrong spirit, then that's obviously bad. So I think the issue is not so much paying or not paying musicians, but seeing the effect that it would have on worship and the whole worship experience. So that's the best way that I would answer that. I hope that's helpful for you, Gina. All right, we're at the end here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the accommodating our late start. We started at one o'clock Pacific time instead of 12 o'clock next week. We're back here at 12 o'clock Pacific time. Thank you also for tolerating my first minute or two of blabbering on without my microphone on. You can tell I still feel bad about that. As I told you at the very beginning, I said I knew something was wrong when I started. I just couldn't figure out what it was. And it took me a little while to get it. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you. Love you. And pray that we can meet together next week, Thursday, 12 noon Pacific time, whatever time it is for your time zone. If you can join us live, that's great. We'd love to hear from you. God bless you. And bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.